I'm Malia, and you're listening to Join the Table, a podcast where I explore myths, causes, and stories surrounding hunger in Maine. So every episode, I ask, why can't people get the food they need? And then I explore that question. On my first visit to Jenny Jones, director of the pantry in my hometown of Bar Harbor, she said the causes are really complicated and multi-pronged, like a lack of transportation, lack of affordable housing, the social safety net not actually fully catching people, and she sees that it's hard to find living wage work in close proximity to where people are living. Here's Jenny as she was listing some of those causes. And then job growth, a struggle I see or hear as well. My husband got a job there, but now I can't find one. And I we can't take this job if both of us aren't working because, you know, he's not getting paid enough. They both need to be working and only one of them got the offer. So it's not we're not attracting more people to live and work here because there's just not enough year round jobs for those people to come. This episode looks into labor, jobs, the food system, and the jobs within the food system. In part one, we'll look into why a small food pantry in Bar Harbor may be feeling the effects of legislative changes that added a time limit and work requirement for people using food stamps. In part two, we'll see what it might look like to have a sustainable and socially just food system that works for laborers and all of us eaters. Let's jump in. One thing that caught my attention in my interview with Jenny was that she said she's seen an increase in clients coming to the pantry. Do you have any idea what contributed to that increase in clientele? Um, I want to suggest that there were SNAP benefit changes that happened legislatively in 2015. And so a lot of users that were getting SNAP were no longer able to receive those benefits in 2016. SNAP, which is essentially the same thing as food stamps, changed in 2016 in Maine, when the state instilled a time limit on adults who weren't working. Basically, now in Maine, it's late May of 2018 as this episode is aired, if you cannot find a job within three months of being on SNAP, you'll be kicked off the program. And legislators are trying to remove even the three-month grace period. Aren't these benefits for folks who need additional support in times like those? We'll get back to that. SNAP is a program that's part of the nation's federally funded social safety net. It's designed to help families stretch food budgets, but in Maine, it only averages $1.20 per person per meal. There are other restrictions that were added in 2016, like an asset test. So if a household has more than 2,000 uncountable resources, like money in a bank account, they're no longer eligible. They'll be allowed $3,000 in a bank account if someone in the home has a disability or is elderly. So those legislative changes, the ones that Jenny was talking about, the ones that she suspects contributed to the increase in clients she's seen coming to the pantry. Two of the biggest changes were the time limit for folks who aren't working and the asset test. And the reason the work requirement happened was largely because Maine's Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, didn't reapply to have the requirement waived by the federal government, even though Maine was eligible in places where there were low jobs or high unemployment because Maine's had a slow recovery from the recession. 16.4% of Mainers are food insecure today, when, before the recession, it was 12.9%. And Maine's state government hasn't been capitalizing on the federal money that's available for SNAP. Michelle Lamb, the program manager at Preble Street's Maine Hunger Initiative, weighs in about Maine not applying to waive the work requirement. 
you know, so it's it's a real challenge. And we could have had a geographic waiver for Maine where we could have applied for a waiver to waive the work requirements for people in areas where there's low jobs and um, high unemployment. Unfortunately, we lost that to the DHS administration, and we've just seen more and more people, you know, living in poverty and, and not having the food that they need. They're now talking about having work requirements for Maine Care, which we know after seeing it with food stamps that the answer isn't to, you know, it's if you kick someone off food stamps and say, go get a job, it doesn't work like that. And, you know, we feel like when you're unemployed is when you need the money the most to stay healthy and active so you can enter the workforce. Between 2007 and 2017, Maine saw a 12.8% decline in manufacturing jobs, largely due to the closure of many of Maine's mills in more rural areas over the last decade. Those kinds of jobs provided steady, well-paid work, most often with benefits, for people with or without a college education. As Maine works to re-identify itself economically with new industries, Maine's government continues to not accept the full levels of support available from the federal government. To learn more about the current picture of hunger in Maine, I turned to a report called Hunger Pains, put out by Good Shepherd Food Bank and the Preble Street Resource Center in Portland. It came out in the winter of 2017 and outlined the struggles that Mainers face to get food. To create the study, they collected qualitative and quantitative data from over 2,000 people who were using food pantries and meal sites from every county in Maine and representing 244 towns. The report was written by a team, and economist and professor Michael Hillard assisted with the study and his students helped collect data and conduct interviews. He had been introduced to many people working on hunger in the Portland area when he was creating a food studies department at the University of Southern Maine a few years before. So I went to go talk to Michael Hillard to chat about the study and the economic structure of Maine and his office in Portland. Sure. So shall we get started? Sure. Well, what I didn't know before all this started is that while I was aware that poverty was a problem in Maine and around the country, I did not know the extent of it in Maine. And uh, when we were first uh, communicating with uh, local organizations that work in the Maine food system about how, what kind of programs should we develop here at USM, and we talked to you know, more than 60 people in small groups uh, over a six-month period. We met with those who were working on the food security problem, and they, they basically made two things very clear. Professor Hillard, if you didn't realize it, Maine has got one of the worst rates of food insecurity in the country. Uh, and secondly, we are rolling up our sleeves over here at places like Maine Hunger Initiative, which is in Preble Street, and Good Shepherd Food Bank, um, and I would say the Cumberland County Food Security Council as well, working on both the mechanics of feeding people in the state and the policy. They uh, wanted to be able to paint a picture of the basic questions that come up around people who are uh, seeking help to, to feed themselves. Like, so why is this happening? I brought the focus because of my labor background to say, well, we really want to understand what's happening with people in terms of employment. And I think that, you know, what a lot of people believe in an offhand way is, oh, if you just get up, go out your door, apply, knock on doors, you can get a job. And they don't realize that there are often many barriers that people have. The Hunger Pains Report surveyed 2,000 people using food pantries from every county in Maine. If one of the respondents checked yes, they had lost benefits because of the work requirement and time limit, the survey asked a few further questions to see what kind of barriers they faced. 59% of them said they were unable to find work or couldn't find transportation to work, and 13% had health and caregiving barriers. In combination with those types of barriers, in some places, meaningful year-round work can be slim. 
we had been able to document a picture in which uh, it is possible to understand why it's so extensive in Maine, um, that you have a combination of a collapse of the rural Maine industrial economy that only got worse after the 2008 recession. Um, so just the lack of income opportunity in many parts of the state, you know, there's just no jobs for people anymore. In the late spring of 2018, Maine's economy is steadily recovering from the recession in many areas of the state, but a lot of people working are using SNAP or food pantries, indicating that many jobs just don't provide enough income to meet basic needs. In southern Maine, we have the opposite problem. There's plenty of employment, but about a third of it is very low wage, like under $12 an hour, and then housing costs have gone up quite dramatically in a lot of places. 10 to $12 wouldn't be considered a living wage, but it's still very hopeful that the 2016 referendum to raise Maine's minimum wage raised it to $10 per hour in 2018, and $1 more every year until it reaches $12 in 2020. That's making pretty big strides from $7.50 before the referendum passed. The Hunger Pains report asked people about the highest hourly wage at their current or last job. The median response was $10 per hour, which is below the federal poverty line if there's four in the family. And benefits were lacking as well. For example, only 15% said they had access to health insurance through their current or most recent employer. And Michael mentioned that many of the lower wage service industry employers like to have flexibility, so they'll hire people part-time, but not give fixed schedules to them, so it can be hard to get a second job. The original purpose of food pantries and what they've had to become is affected by policy. Once again, food pantry director Jenny Jones. I'm a little worried in this current administration and how things are going that we might lose a lot more funding to SNAP, which puts the pressure on smaller pantries. Pantries are no longer this emergency aid. We're a stable aid for people because there's just a lot of poverty across our nation. So if we have these large federally funded programs that are getting cut, it falls on somebody and that trickle down ends up being pantries. And I worry if we're going to be able to sustain how much we give to each client as our client base grows. The stricter these regulations get, like because you saved more than $2,000 this year, you look too rich for any support. Or a 25 cent raise at a job cut you off completely without any graduated support. The less they help people step up and out of poverty and emergency. Yeah, because there's not much of a ladder, it seems like. Not much of a gradual staircase. <laughs> there's no staircase. It's just a cliff. Part two, workers in the food system. Let's take a step back in the timeline of Michael, the economist. Before he came to the point of realizing how extensive hunger was in Maine and getting to the point of starting the food studies program and helping with the hunger pains report, he wasn't so cognizant of how workers at every level of the food chain are some of our worst paid laborers. As someone who studies labor economics, his ears perked up one day when he was listening to the radio. And I remember hearing an interview in my kitchen where this guy, Eric Schlosser, was talking about 
this new book he had, and the interview was fascinating, and it talked a lot about how the whole industrial food system had taken jobs that were middle class and made them into really sketchy, difficult, dangerous, slowly paid jobs, um, especially in the meatpacking industry. I said, ah, that's something I got to look into. And then I got a hold of the book and read it, and the book is Fast Food Nation. The book started him down a path of really exploring the exploitation of food systems workers. In the poorly paid production and processing jobs that resulted from the rise of the industrial food system, but also many of the retail and serving jobs. We have a lot of those in Maine. If you're familiar with the greater Portland area, we're one of the biggest foodie cities in the country. You have, you know, gazillion restaurants, our farmers markets are lush. And so what's interesting about the kind of modern foodie movement, whatever you would call it, over the last 20 years is that there's a new culture in which more and more people, probably younger, probably more middle or upper class, um, care uh, something about the food. So they want to know that it was locally produced, first and foremost. They want to know that it was produced without pesticides or uh, or fertilizers that harm the environment. Uh, and then a growing concern about whether or not the animals are treated well or not, because there's been journalism on that. And I think the last thing that people can get their mind around is the labor piece. Michael wants to complicate and add to the existing mainstream food movement to move from... Let's have a sustainable local food system to be, let's have a sustainable uh, local socially just food system that looks at the treatment of the people who bring you your food. So I think that, you know, to me, social justice is first and foremost about, you know, the people who bring us our food should be able to afford to buy and eat it and, and, and be food secure and be housing secure and, you know, not to be on the edge. But I think this is a great area to work on because, you know, I'd like to live in a good society. I think people have that on their mind these days in a big way. Um, and I think the food system is just such a, a robust area in which you can pursue those goals. Michael mentioned that he's hoping that in people's food choices and as they're thinking about what their goals for the future of food production are, that they think about the people who brought them the food. There's a lot to be done beyond the kinds of purchases we make. It's important to look at food systems issues from a policy perspective because consumer demand cannot by itself bring about a socially just food system. And SNAP benefits that we spoke about earlier are part of the Farm Bill, which is a piece of food and agriculture legislation. So I went to speak with someone who's directly involved in farm and food policy and works for the representative of Maine's first congressional district. So uh, Emily Horton, I work for Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. She focused her undergraduate studies in agriculture. And then went to get my master's in public health because I really wanted to focus on how food impacts health, not only of human beings, but of the environment. And then from there, I realized that in order to really make a difference in local food systems and in Maine, having an understanding of policy is really important. I'm essentially kind of boots on the ground for the congresswoman. I listen. My job is really to listen to constituents. So I go out there and I go to meetings and I listen to people about what issues they're having in farming or in agriculture. Like Michael, Emily also feels like the food system is an awesome place to work on both environmental and social goals. And she sees those two as being very linked. Healthy soil means happy farmers, means stronger economy, means healthier people. I asked her what, in her view, needs to happen so that all people in Maine have access to healthy food. I think there's a whole systematic kind of approach that we need to look at. We need to look at it holistically. So everything from, I mean, for people to get food, we need 
healthy soil and land to grow the food. We need farmers who are making a affordable living wage to grow the food and, and sell it. We need people to have a living wage so they can purchase the food. A lot of Maine is rural. You know, transportation is really important, getting to and from farmers markets or grocery stores. So I think looking at kind of all of those elements and, of course, we need policies and people who are empowered both at the state legislature and in D.C. to make sure we're supporting people to get access to food. And, of course, the health of the farmers themselves. I think oftentimes farmers are the ones who are food insecure. They're they're not paid a living wage and they are often in debt. And it's truly pretty ironic that the people who bring us our food may actually be very low income, and they may at times be food insecure because their income can't support food purchasing for items off the farm. And people who bring us food at every level of the food chain, from planting, harvesting, processing, preparing, serving, and selling, are not being paid fairly. A 2011 report by the Food Chain Workers Alliance found that nationally, food chain workers, so anyone working along that food production chain from growing to serving or selling, receive SNAP at a rate one and a half times that of other workers, with white food chain workers earning a median of $25,000 a year, while workers of color were receiving $19,300 a year. I asked Emily about what kinds of things her offices are working on, and she mentioned two programs that receive funding from the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, that help people who are food insecure and help farmers. So in Maine, we have the Maine Harvest Bucks program, which is partially funded through the USDA. Basically, if you're receiving SNAP benefits and you bring your EBT card to the farmer's market, and they'll have $20, but they can get $40 worth, so they'll get double their money. So there's definitely ways to make the food affordable. You know, if you go to a farmer's market and buy a pound of carrots, it's going to be cheaper than if you go to a store because you're cutting out that middleman. You're going directly to the farmer and the farmer is getting that price. Another program is the Value Added Producer Grant Program. It's the only grant that goes directly to farmers. The funding is used for farmers to value add their product. For example, I've talked to two dairy farmers who lost their contracts with major dairies like Horizon and Oakers this year who've been value-adding their milk by making cream cheese or yogurt to sell at farmer's markets and stores, and one now sells to a local school. It's a really big economic driver for small communities, and we've seen millions of dollars come into the state for this. But what do those projects have in common? Well, the value-added producer grant has been zeroed out in the president's budget for the next fiscal year, and the USDA grant that was funding the main Harvest Bucks program, which gives people on food stamps double their money when they buy produce at the farmer's market, has expired, and Maine is unable to get it again at this point. But where there's a will, there's a way, and so the program is still happening in many places because communities and farmers have realized the importance and impact of the program and work to keep it going. In terms of supporting the local food system and that whole food chain that we talked about, there are so many USDA programs that we see come and fund small projects in Maine. So they may not be a big deal to like big agriculture groups out west. So these programs, again, even though it's like a teeny, teeny piece of the pie in terms of the farm bill funding, it goes a really long way for a small state. And so we've been seeing those programs being zeroed out and cut, and it's just really heartbreaking because we know it's going to have such a big ripple effect in Maine. Both Michael and Emily support policies that are intended to boost economic growth, support laborers and living wage jobs, and support an environmentally sustainable and socially just food system. Before I go, here's a few tips from Emily about how to get involved in policy, starting with what happens when you reach out to Congresswoman Shelley Pingree? So they can email, they could call. If it's within my issue set, 
it will come to me at some point. It's really simple. I grew up in a culture where we never thought about reaching out to our congressional office. Like my parents never called their U.S. representative to make changes. Like you just did it yourself or you, you know, figured it out. And now working here, I try really hard to make sure that people feel like our office is accessible to them. So you can just call, email, write. Shelly has a policy where we say yes to every meeting. So every request that comes in. She says that she loves when people develop a relationship with her so she can be a resource to them, but also in case they're ever able to be a resource to her. Someone to add to her toolbox for moments when she needs another opinion on bills. We'll find out that a bill is hitting the floor and we'll want to call someone in Maine to say, what do you think about this? People don't always realize that they're the experts in in what they do. But whether or not you're an expert, she suggested another way to get involved. A lot of people are limited on time and resources, right? So depending on what your values are or what you're interested in, become a member of a nonprofit or I'll just throw MOFCA out there. Like if you're a member of MOFCA, they have a public policy committee and they're following what's happening in D.C. They're following what's happening in Maine. There is more to being hungry than people may realize. Legislation, especially legislation that supports Maine's people and Maine's food, should be compassionate and assume that when given the resources and respect, people have incredible potential. Thanks for listening. Familiarize yourself with your local food pantry by stopping to get services if you need them, to write a check, donate supplies, donate your time. Many food pantries and shelters have websites where donating is just a click away. To help people in need and ease overburdened charitable organizations support the expansion of government SNAP benefits, previously known as food stamps, affordable healthcare options, and living wage jobs for Mainers. Special thanks this episode to the Preble Street Resource Center and Good Shepherd Food Bank who oversaw the Hunger Pains Report. Thanks to Michelle Lamb from Preble Street's advocacy arm, the Maine Hunger Initiative, to Jennifer Jones of the Barber Food Pantry and Michael Hillard from University of Southern Maine, and Emily Horton of the offices of Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. To my project advisors, Courtney Cullum and Nancy Andrews, who were with me at every step, thank you. Thank you to Zach Kendall for composing all the music for the podcast and for production help. Thanks to Emma Kimball and Stephen Rose Demers for listening to drafts and catching things I couldn't. Thank you to my academic advisor, Bonnie Tai, for your support. Thanks to College of the Atlantic and the Maine Space Grant Consortium for their institutional support and supplementary funding for this project. To learn more, Google Hunger Pains Report and include Maine in the search. Good Shepherd Food Bank posted the full report online, while Preble Street posted an abbreviated executive summary. To find stats I used about food chain workers nationally, search the U.S. Farm Bill corporate power, and structural racialization in the U.S. food system. Make sure to check out the other Join the Table podcasts in the series if you haven't already. Thanks again. Thanks again.